Ladies and gentlemen, to the scientific mind, this title sounds extreme and maybe insane. We are heirs of the 20th century when science and materialism ruled, religions were battered, and God was sent into exile. The rule of thumb was that you can talk about something only if you carried into the lab for testing or into mathematical expression. Now, Mark Liu, L-I-U, is the president of TSMC, the huge operation in Taiwan that manufactures a great percentage of our computer chips. He's a super scientist, and everyone who works for him is a super scientist. And to all of them, he says, open quote, every scientist must believe in God, close quote. These people are exploring nature at its most distant and unknowable. They're putting a trillion transistors on a chip try to make sense of this quest. Apparently, humility is helpful. Lou likes to quote this biblical proverb, it's the glory of God to conceal matter, but to search out matter is the glory of men. Now, the split between material and divine reached a peak in the 1920s. Ludwig Wittgenstein proclaimed, loose translation, open quote, confronted by things we can't talk about, we must be silent, close quote. Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead in England welcomed the finality of the statement because they had published in 1911 a compilation of all true statements or propositions. This collection reached hundreds of pages, but as with stars, why should there be an end to it all? These men were brilliant, but they couldn't see that Wittgenstein's prohibition instantly invited challenge. Why can't we speak of these things? Wittgenstein, who withdrew from the purity of his position, took a few years to decide that real philosophy was analyzing mundane speech. Now, three of the most brilliant people at that time were seduced by the thought that statements could be absolute. Knowing so much, they still did not see their project was lunacy. What chance do the more ignorant have? Now, I started with Mark Liu because most Americans would not imagine a major scientist talking so comfortably about God. This anecdote will probably expand your ability to gain more knowledge. Thinking you know all the answers guarantees that you won't ever know all the answers. Which brings us back to critical thinking, which was the topic here all along. It's a constant irritation to me that our education establishment pretends to care about critical thinking or truth generally. They manage to suggest it's like a new suit. You put it on when you want to. Here's my take. Critical thinking is the rearranging and prioritizing of knowledge. The more knowledge you have acquired, the more you are able to engage in critical thinking. If the question before us is what should Germany have done differently so that Operation Barbarossa would succeed, we need lots of input. My first thought is you would want to talk to people who know military science, logistics, and how many planes each army had, all the stuff that lets smart people make intelligent deductions. Recently, I saw an amazing letter by General Sherman, circa 1860, in which he said with casual confidence that if the Confederates were so stupid as to attack the northern states, the southerners would be beaten into primitive defeat. I thought, now that's what critical thinking looks like. 
That's why Sherman was a great general, and most of us are not. I believe the traditional education system from first to twelfth grade was designed expressly to make people able to engage in critical thinking. Students learn all the basic knowledge, then the more and more sophisticated knowledge that lets critical thinking take place. And we should return immediately to this careful progression. Now in closing, critical thinking is not a skill you suddenly embrace, it's a reservoir of relevant information that you are able to bring to problems. That's what we should be focused on in all schools. Trouble is, our top educators are contemptuous of knowledge. Praise for critical thinking is probably intended to provide cover for this silly prejudice. Thank you. Overview. Let's Fix Education explores seven of my favorite themes. First, this podcast is a meditation on what I call the K-12 crime scene. So many destructive ideas. Understanding them is the key to fixing them. Two, by doing that we will have better schools at less cost. Three, nothing much changes decade to decade. The big questions of the 1930s were the big questions of the 1960s and the 1990s. Any subject we discuss can easily intersect with any other subject. Most people instinctively want traditional education, but the education establishment fills classrooms with progressive gimmicks. The result is that we have a standoff, and that's why you run into the same ideas over and over. Four, the big brains in education keep telling students, don't bother memorizing this or that. You can look it up later. B.B. King, comma, the great guitarist, is much smarter. He said, the beautiful thing about learning is nobody can take it away from you. Five, Lennon's ghost wanders through our school system. The hard left thinks big. If they have to kill millions of people to build their perfect society, that's okay. Same goes for dumbing down millions of students. Totalitarians want power. They will do anything to get it. Six. If we are going to survive, we have to take each child to his or her limit. As it is, we are creating millions of subeducated students from K right through college. 7. Analyzing education, especially dysfunctional education, is a lot more intellectually interesting than most people suppose. You'll enjoy this. Finally, P.S. My book, Saving K-12, runs parallel to everything discussed on this podcast. I also have an education site, improve-education.org, with 70 articles that complement everything discussed here. And I have hundreds of articles on the Internet. Enter a topic in Google with my full name, Bruce Dietrich Price, and let Google make suggestions. Thank you for visiting.